Hey friends, Andy Jenkins here. I'm in the backyard at the hilltop. Normally I record these from upstairs in the office with these massive windows that really overlook uh, this. It's it's not really a ravine. It's it's just a distance between us and the neighbors that really goes downhill and then aggressively back uphill. Uh, all these deer, uh, Bonado is what the uh, Hispanic guys that have been over here working downstairs on the bathroom renovation this past week. So what they call them, uh, Bonado. Uh, so we've got, we've got this great space and today's a beautiful day. I thought I would come outside to record so you may catch uh, the neighbors cutting his grass. Uh, you know, his house is 100 yards away, but it's a massive lawnmower. Uh, the boys are outside playing basketball about 50 yards away, just kind of up the hill. I'm down here near the fire pit and want to share with you for the next several episodes, really this topic that I've been developing for several years now. Uh, this one, it really kind of goes back to one of the first times Beth and I ever talked. Uh, we we met to discuss a book that I had co-authored uh, with my friend, uh, actually boss, uh, Bob Waldrop, who is the founder and CEO of Crosswinds Foundation for Faith and Culture. Uh, we had written a book about PTSD and moral injury uh, for veterans. And of course, you know, PTSD is no respecter of persons. Veterans, uh, though, have some unique uh, setups that lend itself to PTSD, post-traumatic stress, uh, and uh, some other opportunities that they face that probably, you know, it's more predominant there than the general populace. Uh, really, it, it can happen to anyone at any time, uh, according to the definition of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, which I won't go into right now. Uh, however, um, that was the opportunity because I, I dealt with veterans and, and Beth had not discussing that book and really some of our conclusions, uh, some of what we had learned exploring that farther is the reason that we first met. And so that led to more conversations about the topic of helping people walk through trauma, of helping people walk through not just trauma, what you would say with a capital T, like these big major events, um, those for certain happen. But the truth is, you know, life is so beautiful, but it's also really difficult. And you go outside long enough, uh, you might not get caught in a thunderstorm, but you will experience some rain. And, you know, that might be a good way to think of big T trauma and little t, kind of my explanation there, trauma. Uh, that there, there are these major events such as war and uh, landmines and stepping on an IED, an improvised explosive device. Uh, there are things such as, as rape and molestation and abuse. You know, what we would think of hurricanes, natural disasters, uh, accidents. We would think of those as, as maybe big T trauma and perhaps just the grind of life uh, with enough repetition and enough force repeated as as that little t. And so, you know, with all of that, uh, we really were dialoguing when came came upon this concept, uh, really that we labeled as future grace. Not necessarily grace right now for the moment. You know, you know that is how we often limit grace or not only grace 
for the past, but really believing that if God truly holds all things together, if he is the author uh, and the finisher of the faith, if he is the beginning and the end, if he is, to use biblical language, the alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, last letter, uh, the A to Z is kind of how we would say that in English. If he is all those, those things, then that really means that grace not only works for the past failures that we have, uh, it not only works for the past things that we've endured, it not only works for the present, but it also works for the future. And so we really started coming upon this idea of, of future grace and again, grace that would not only work for back then, but would work for now and and for later. Uh, let me give you the backstory. And, and this is just going to take, goodness, several episodes. I, I told Beth earlier today, I said, hey, I, th- I think I'm going to record the podcasts on on future grace, on that concept. Now, now we both kind of know what that is because that's been language that we've been sharing. Um, and lately, we, we've been in the season that's been so busy. Uh, she's been finishing a project. Uh, for a nonprofit, I've been finishing at the same time a project where we're about to this weekend, this coming weekend, record all of the video content for Amplify. Uh, Amplify is a a framework really that'll help you multiply and monetize your message. We really believe that if you've got something important to say, then you need the capacity. To, to really plug that thing into a megaphone or into an amplifier and get that word out and not just get it out, but, but you've got to be able at some point to monetize it uh, because it, it takes money to do all this stuff. <laughs> Websites cost money. Producing books, publishing them costs money. Uh, recording a video course, it costs money. And so whether you're trying to earn enough money for a side hustle or to live off of a full-time income or replace your income or just enough money to fund the message, you've got to be able to monetize it in the process of multiplying it or, or you'll go in the hole. And so for the last three months, I've really been writing all those processes down that we've used for the last six, seven, eight years um, that, that I've used before I met her, that she'd used before she met me. And then it was kind of the synergy where there was a lot that I knew. There was a lot that she knew. A few of those things overlapped. A lot of those things didn't overlap at all, meaning they weren't the same. Like I knew different things than she knew. She knew different things than I knew, but they all synthesized and fit together. They were all necessary, like pieces of a puzzle. And so I spent the last couple months writing all that, which is which is where I've been on the podcast. Um, that's why we haven't recorded one. So I told her, I said, as, as I'm ramping back up, you know, all that content is produced. The workbooks are on the way in the mail. The book has been it's, it's been edited, it's been read for the audiobook. All of the pieces are together. The people are coming to be a live studio audience that we record this weekend. I, th- I think it's time to crank the podcast back up. And so I want to talk about future grace. Uh, and I, I cautioned Beth earlier. I said, when, when, and when I do this, here's the deal is so many talks, you just you, you land it. Like, like you, you talk. And you make the point, and then there it is. Like it's, it's just you finish it. Like it's a 25 or 30 minute thing, and it's tidy at the end. It, like it's uh, one of my friends used to say when I was I was preaching on Sunday evenings at a church um, in my mid 20s, early 30s. He said, "You always you always like to have a bow on the end." 
meaning you like to wrap it all up. And the truth is, this was a friend giving me some great feedback. He said, you, you don't always get a bow. Like sometimes you just present the information and you let people sort through it on their own. And so that's really what I'm doing here. I, I think if you listen to all five, six, seven episodes, whatever this entire series of talks comes out to be, that you'll, you will get a bow, at least to understand the concept. But I think here in episode one uh, of this series on Future Grace, I'm going to give you some information. Uh, I'm going to come back in episode two. I'm going to give you a little bit more. Episode three, a little bit more after that, four. And I think you'll be able to stack it all together. Uh, by the way, what I'd love for you to do is down in the show notes below, I put a link right there. There is a free, it's a 10-question post-traumatic stress self-check. Now, I'm not trying to diagnose, treat, prescribe, nothing of the sort, but if you take that checklist uh, right there, and it's just yes or no questions, just go through those, and you know that, that might let you see is like, oh, golly, I've, I've, got some, I've got some stressors, some of those, you know, uh, trauma, maybe big, maybe little. I've got some stuff i got to sort through, it'll, and it'll just kind of identify like, hey, yeah, here's, again, yes, no questions, completely anonymous. I would encourage you to go ahead and, and just take that, maybe even while you're listening, and just kind of power through it. Again, the link is right there below. Uh, let, let me get started. Um, years ago, it's, it's been, goodness, uh, almost 30, not quite 30. Uh, years ago, I really started thinking about eternity uh, amidst living this present physical now. I'll, I'll tell you why. Death really makes the important things seem ultra real. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says that. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Uh, it's better to go to a funeral, is what he's saying, than to go to a fiesta, to a party. Uh, here, here's why he says that. It's not, it's not that parties are bad. It's not that festivities are evil. In fact, he even says in another passage in that same book, there's a time for everything. There's a time for joy and there's a time for mourning. There's a time for laughter. There's a time for pain, a time for gladness, a time for sorrow. For everything under heaven, there is a ordained time. However, in that verse, he says it's better to go to the house of mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Mourning, weeping, pain, hurt, sadness than to just arbitrarily go to a house of gladness. Here's why. It's because it puts this perspective uh, that life is uh, temporary, that it's fragile, that we're not guaranteed tomorrow or, or the next day, even, even the next breath. And so going to the house of mourning, it really causes us to take inventory and to consider the things that matter the most. You know, there's nothing like going through a hard season. You've probably been through something like that. You go through a divorce, you go through a bankruptcy, you go through uh, the disillusion of a relationship that you once really depended upon. 
you, you go through, you're working at a job and then there's an abrupt, unexplained ending. You, you go through uh, a, a kid uh, gets ill or sick or hurt or injured, any of those things, it really causes us to pause, to pause from the things that seem so pressing in the moment. And then to step back and think, goodness, you, you know, some of these life situations and these circumstances, I grant them far more weight and relevance than they truly merit. Now, that's what happened to me. I was a junior in college at Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, when Pop died. Uh, Pop was, I, I suppose he still is, he's my paternal grandfather. That's my dad's dad. So my, my dad's name, to put this in perspective, is Edwin Fred Jenkins. Uh, my name is Andrew Edwin Jenkins, my firstborn son, Noah Andrew. So there's kind of this trend of, you know, a new name, and then the middle name is named after the father. And so you kind of go up the line. Uh, my father is Edwin, and his father is Fred. I refer to Fred as Pop. Now, I remember when he died. Again, I was a junior at Sanford University. So I'm really entering into adulthood. I'm past that, you know, the silliness and the, I know everything that is a college freshman. Uh, when you're first exposed to new ideas and you're first out of the house, and now I've kind of settled in and I'm starting to make sense of, of some things and starting to form some of my own opinions, some of them that are founded more on something that's actually sorted through rather than, oh, I read this or I heard this from some professor. You know, there's more to it than that. I remember attending his funeral, Pops, uh, and the pastor stood there in the service. Uh, Pop was in the casket and the pastor said, he's not here. His body is here but he's not here because the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Now, it kind of dawned on me in that moment that so many of us growing up in the church have this idea of kind of theologically, uh, kind of our soul is more like Casper the friendly ghost. It's like you die, this, this, this ghost type soul just pops out and then makes its presence to heaven. And that really led me to attention, um, is I'm pondering that and really thinking on this on a whole new level because after the memorial service, we moved you know, in procession, all the cars in a row to the burial grounds. It was to a cemetery that was just catty-cornered to the funeral home, right, ac right across the street, and then down a block or so. Uh, there at the graveside, the pastor said something slightly different. Okay, so remember in the in the ceremony inside the funeral home, he says he's not here because to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. He's not here. His body is here, but he's not here at the graveside. He quotes Paul again. Uh, Paul wrote all of the letters to the church at Corinth as well as uh, the letters to the church at Thessalonica. And he's, about, he's about to quote Thessalonians. Um, 
he opened up a well-worn Bible, black leather pocket. He pulled it out. You know, it was reserved for occasions such as baby dedications, weddings, funerals. Uh, you know, his job as a pastor, really, you, you birth people, you marry them, you bury them. That's what he used this small Bible for. It was, it was a parrot. This is a great pastor. I had met him on multiple occasions. He read from 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, which says this, in the future, the dead in Christ will rise. And so the pastor then continues and says, okay, so at some point in the future, you know, Christ returns. And if we're all alive, you know, the, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we will go up with them and meet them in the sky. But if we've died between now and the time Christ returns, we'll be in the ground and we will, as part of the dead in Christ, we will rise. And then those who are alive that are, that are on the earth, like us, like we are now, they, they will be up there in the sky. And so we will all be together with our family and with our friends and with Christ. And he continued reading the scripture. It says, encourage each other with these words. At that same time, at the graveside, you know, there, you've got the image, you know, the casket in, in this steel or metal shell However they do it, it's, it's sitting there. There are flowers around. There are friends and family uh, gathered around, kind of standing, clustered around this covered tent with outsides. And the closest family members are sitting in rows of folding chairs that have been covered with some kind of velour topping. They're sitting there in front as the pastor is to the side of the casket. He reads also from... John 14. Uh, that's the passage where Jesus tells us that he's gone to prepare a place for us so that, here's, here's kind of the quote, where he is, we may also be. And, and he, in the upper room, when Jesus is sharing this with his disciples, he promised them that if he goes to prepare a place for us, we know that he will come and get us. And so I'm holding all of these ideas in tension. Okay, so get the picture. You might even be putting this together about someone you know or your own past experiences in similar situations. You go into the funeral home or the church where they have the memorial service and they say he or she is not here because to be absent from the body is unequivocally to be present with Christ. And, and then you go to the graveside and they say, okay, here's the body. And even though we've just said they're already with Christ, we, we then make this declaration that in the future, the dead in Christ will rise. They will go be with him, even though we've already said they're already with him. They will go be with him, and then we also who are here will, will join them. And so it, it just leads all these questions. Again, I'm a junior in college, and so I'm starting to kind of sort and critically think and really ponder some of the weightier matters of the world and of life and of, of existence. So my, my question then is, where is Pop? Uh, his body is in the casket, uh, and in the future, he's going to arise out of the ground, out of the casket, presumably that's in the ground, but to be absent from the body, he's definitely not there. Is he in 
heaven with Christ right now uh, and with, you know, my grandmother uh, and others or uh, what exactly is he at this point doing? Is he just on pause? Is he just kind of in this waiting moment to where years, decades, centuries from now, something happens? At the time, I, I, I didn't know. Um, I, I thought I knew, but then you just start holding all these things in tension and say, God, you know what, I, this, is, this is so much bigger than my capacity to comprehend it or contain it in just a couple of sentences. Now, now let me give you another layer of this. My, my dad was a pastor. I grew up in the church. I attended the Sunday before I was born. Uh, I attended the Sunday after I was born. So get that. I was a breech baby. Uh, the, the rumor, as the story goes, so that, that means I'm, I'm kind of born not upside down like most babies are. I'm, I'm right side up. Uh, so the rumor is that my mom was singing in a Christmas cantata when she was nine months pregnant, about to have me, and that she actually felt me flip during the hallelujah chorus. <laughs> so, uh, again, I was involved in church from the earliest. I used to, I remember this, by choice. I used to ride to the hospitals with my dad to visit sick people in our church, sick congregants. Um most of them returned home after a brief stay in the hospital. And, and again, it wasn't like he drugged me there. I, I liked going. I liked riding with dad and just kind of doing, you know, whatever it is that we were doing. Um, some of those people did not return home from the hospital. And when they died, I attended some of those funerals. Um, so I was raised hearing all of the verses that I had heard at Pop's funeral. They were familiar. Uh, they weren't new at all. What was new was the proximity of someone passing that was, you know, that close in my family. It was a grandfather. Uh, and, and when I was growing up, and when I was born in Texas, you know, my, my grandparents all lived in Birmingham. And so we really only saw them a few times a year. But around fifth grade, we moved to Birmingham. And then I remember my mom and dad, they took us to see our grandparents at least once a week, we saw all of them. And I remember them always saying, hey, you know, it's important because you don't ever know how much time you have. And so I grew up knowing these grandparents extremely well. Uh, eventually, they even attended the same church. And uh, they kept us many times when my parents went out of town. It would be the grandparents that were kind of the, the week-long, you know, babysitter, kid sitters, uh, especially as we got older. And we're in high school and, and didn't necessarily need all this hands-on lifting and carrying and that sort of attention. We just needed responsible adults in the place. So the proximity of someone dying that was that close to me, it, it made this very personal. Uh, there still, uh, to this moment, there, there's this, I'm going to put a link down below uh, to a video that I shot several years ago when I was teaching uh, the healing workshop. Uh, the healing workshop was... A video course that really talks about um, miracles and natural health and how all of these fit together and what happens when you're praying for something and it doesn't occur the way you thought it should you know is all health gone is it just your lot in life to be sick is this you know 
just kind of the cards you've been dealt or or is there another option is there hope and and in that uh lesson uh, one of the lessons i I really talk about this idea of the limbic system Uh, the limbic system is really kind of at the core of your brain i'm grossly oversimplifying it right now but the limbic system is responsible for memory Uh, it's responsible for uh, kind of you sensing what's happening around you Uh, many times you sense things before you even intellectually think about them Uh, that's why you'll walk into an environment and you'll you'll instantly feel at ease or you'll instantly feel unsafe or unsettled uh, even though you haven't intellectually thought about why why should I feel this Uh, why is this reaction happening in my body, uh, good or bad? The limbic system is tied to, this is what's interesting, your sense of smell and your sense of hearing, sound. And so uh, many times you'll remember things and because of the limbic system, it will attach a smell or a sound to that memory. Uh, This is the reason why you can go outside in the fall and you catch the smell you know of the leaves and just kind of the the sound of of the wind blowing just like it's doing right now um in the background i don't even know if you can hear that you catch just a certain it's it's almost an intangible but you just know it's fall and instantly you're transported back to a different time and place Uh, it's why for the rest of your life, you can hear a certain song that reminds you of a great moment when when you experience something exuberant, joyful when you were growing up, uh, and immediately you're back there. I remember running miles with the wrestling team in high school, and certain songs were, were almost on repeat on the radio. We didn't have iPods and CD players and all that. We just coach would let us listen to the radio while we're running and you know most DJs would be lazy they're playing the same 15 songs over and over and when certain songs peaked you know number one through number five those songs oh goodness they get gargantuan amounts of airplay some of those songs would instantly if I hear them now take me back three decades to just some great moments of running with with the wrestling team right now because of the limbic system there's a certain boys to men song one sweet day Uh, you might recognize that you might not but if you do you know right now it's probably playing in your mind anytime it comes on it instantly transports me back to that time when when pop died because it was popular in that moment and it seemed like we were doing so many things um, the back and forth uh, to his house to check on him um, the coming and going you know from funeral and planning when that song just happened to peak and it just right now it's, it's just kind of marked uh, there were other things that led me to really ponder deeper things, deeper truths here as well. One, one of them was with Pop's passing, it really marked our routine. 
my grandmother, we called her Nana. Uh, she never learned to drive. <laughs> she didn't have a need to. So she never did. Uh, and she'd also been, uh, let's just say festively plump. She'd been obese for as long as I can remember. I, I, I do not recall a time ever in her life, absolutely no disrespect meant towards her or intended to anyone else, when she was not overweight and marked by some sort of health challenge that was related to it. Uh, leading up to Pop's death, my dad did such a fabulous job taking care of him during that season. Uh, I overheard multiple conversations between Nana and Pop uh, and between my parents as to what she should do when the time came. So, you know, without a means to drive with a mate that she's been married to for 50 plus years, like this was gonna be a major life altering event, understandably so. Uh, should she keep the big house two story that they had with no means to get around transportation wise, there was no Uber. You know, and the mass transit didn't go to where they lived. Um, they lived in a, in a suburb of Birmingham. So everyone decided uh, because what she really wanted to do was to move to a nearby 100-unit assisted living complex for senior citizens. The name of it was Presbyterian Manor. Now, it was not a nursing home. It was an assisted living where you could come and go, but it was like an apartment complex where you're there where there's on-site nursing, on-site people, uh, a cafeteria, you know, all the food, little shops, 100, again, people. She could literally be there and ride with someone if she wanted to go to church or go to the store or a lot of the churches in the area actually had pickup on Sunday. She would never really even need to leave though other than that because there were so many friends that were already there. Um, the residents, the, again, they could come and go as they please. They could cook in their own units if they wanted to. It's just like regular apartments. Um, she had several friends, again, that lived there. It was located just a few miles from her existing home where her and Pop were living when this decision was made so she could remain in her own neighborhood, go back and forth to the church and stay there at the manor. <laughs> That's what everybody called Presbyterian Manor was, was the manor. Now, while all those decisions were made, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like the manor just has a unit on standby just in case literally they had a waiting list. So someone had to move uh, to a different facility or, you know, many times just due to the age, it would be some, someone might die or they might move to a nursing home uh, just to step up the level of care. So when Pop died, and again, it, it marked, marked me in so many ways just because the schedule, and even though I, I was in college and I'm working and so I've got my own routine going, I really experienced a lot of it up close and personal and saw my dad, you know, have to pick up his dad and carry him from the, the sofa or the living room chair or the kitchen chair where he was sitting, carry him, you know, to his own bed. You know, the, these are the types of things uh, that I saw my father walk out. Uh, and, and I remember when he passed, Nana's room was not available at the manor. They, they put her on a waiting list, kind of knowing, uh, you know, what was going on, I believe, but she still had to wait. And so she moved in with us. 
my brother moved from upstairs bedroom to downstairs. Nana moved across the hall from me into Matthew's room. And uh, it became this, you know, really sweet season where I, for about four, five, six months, she actually lived in our house. And we got to interact with her uh, just about every single day. Uh, I, I, I do remember going back to visit Pop's graveside a couple years later, a friend of mine that was um, a psychology major at Sanford, she rode over there with me. We were kind of talking about all of this one day. I was putting some of the ideas together. And I remember looking for his graveside and I couldn't find it. You know, in, in my mind, it was under this big tree. And she told me, she said, you know, it must have marked you because when emotionally charged things happen, we tend to remember them a bit differently than they actually were when they occurred. Uh, some of the details are amplified. Uh, like that tree. And so she told me, she said, it's not surprising that you would remember a bigger tree you were on, again, with no danger to me. You're just kind of on high alert. You're you're starting to take in all of these things. You're starting to sort in your mind what's occurring. Um, so let me, let me land it. I, I do realize I have, in the last 33 minutes, I've likely raised more questions than you imagine possible with one podcast. I know for certain I really haven't given you any answers. But at this point, I began struggling with the competing notions that Pop, my paternal grandfather, that he is absent from the body, present with Christ now, or even though his body's clearly with us, how is he going to get up out of that body in the future and rise with Christ when Christ comes back? Which one is true? Is he already there or is he waiting to jump up out of his grave at some point yet to be determined? As I thought through it, I thought, goodness, all throughout the scripture, there are all of these competing tensions. Jesus is the lion, yet he's also the lamb. Jesus is the servant, yet he's also the king. Jesus is first and he's last. Now I get it. Those are, in some sense, some of those, at least, we can attribute and go, well, they're, they're, they're metaphors. He's not really a lion, but, but he is servant, and he is simultaneously king, and death's not a metaphor. That really happens. That really occurs. So, is he already there? Is Pop already in heaven? Or does he get up at some point in the future? See, the tension of faith is faith has so many unknowns, so many variables. And it's not really tested until you got to trust it. It's not really faith when, when you just you, you, you see it. Faith exists in the realm of the unseen. And so... Um, that's kind of the messy intro, but what I want to do is I want to promise you that over the next, I think, probably six, seven episodes altogether, I'm going to try to bring not some resolution. I'm going to try to bring some clarity, at least so you can frame it and then make an informed decision yourself about where it all sits. Uh, I tell you where I came out is I came out on the other side with more certainty. So don't be afraid of the questions. I think the questions are kind of the necessary part of the journey to get to that clarity. But as I go there, 
Uh, I encourage you, again, to go down to the show notes below. Two things down there for you. Number one is the PTSD self-check. Ten questions, yes or no, and let's just ask the questions emotionally. Hey, do I need to take a deeper look at what's going on with me? You know, we're physical, we're spiritual, <laughs> we're emotional. Okay, what's, what's up with that? Just check it out and see. And then there is that link I'll put down below about the video about the limbic system. It just really explains right there. You don't even have to sign up for that. You just click and boom, it'll just pop up the video right there. As I leave, my, my prayer for you is this. If the Lord will bless you, he'll keep you. He'll be gracious to you. He will shine his face of favor upon you. And to echo Jesus's little brother, James, if any of you lacks wisdom, meaning you really don't know what to do, how to step, how to walk. You don't, you don't know the practical stuff of living. And, and goodness, you know, this one is so practical. He says, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask, and God will grant it to you without finding fault. So my prayer is that the Lord will grant you the wisdom you need to make it through the next questions, through the next day, knowing, you knowing that there is no fault. Grace and peace. I will see you again in the next episode.